You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. From Vineyard Theater in New York City, this is Theater Uncorked. Where vineyard artists come together to talk about the process of bringing new works to the stage. I'm your host, Eric Pargach. For episode seven, we are joined by legendary composer John Kander, Tony-nominated book writer David Thompson, and five-time Tony Award-winning director and choreographer Susan Stroman. In 1987, John Kander and his late writing partner Fred Ebb, who were responsible for such iconic musicals as Chicago and Cabaret, took a chance on a young creative team that included Susan Stroman and David Thompson. Kander and Ebb agreed to let the team do a revival of their musical Flora the Red Menace here at the Vineyard. It was a wonderful experience for all of them, and Kander, Ebb, Thompson, and Stroman went on to collaborate on several projects throughout the years, including And the World Goes Round and Steel Pier. They returned to the Vineyard in 2010 for the world premiere of The Scottsboro Boys, which was begun with Fred Ebb, but completed after he passed away. Since that experience on the Scottsboro Boys, John Kander has been happy to call the Vineyard his artistic home, premiering his musicals Kid Victory and The Landing Here, which he created with his new writing partner, Greg Pierce. David Thompson, a Tony Award nominee for Steel Pier, has become an active member of the Vineyard's Artistic Council, advocating for the company and helping the Vineyard raise money. Susan Stroman, who directed and choreographed such Tony Award-winning musicals as Bullets Over Broadway and The Producers, winner of a record-making 12 Tony Awards, has also maintained strong Vineyard ties, directing her first straight play Dot by Coleman Domingo on our stage. The Vineyard also created an award in her name, the Susan Stroman Directing Award, a biennial residency-based award granted to talented early or mid-career directors. The team has come together again at the Vineyard with The Beast in the Jungle, an innovative and original new dance play starring Tony Award nominee Tony Yazbek and former American ballet principal dancer Irina Dvorovenko. We are thrilled the three of them could join us during tech rehearsals of The Beast in the Jungle. The production, which opened May 23rd, has gone on to delight audiences and has been critically celebrated as extraordinarily creative and stunningly portrayed by Newsday, with the rap saying, boy does this production and Kander's gorgeous music have a lot to show for itself. And now, this is John Kander, David Thompson, and Susan Stroman in Theater Uncorked at the Vineyard. how we met. Uh, well, that's interesting because we really, um, we knew each other, but we really bonded here at the Vineyard. We um, had mutual friends in Scott Ellis. And uh, at one point, um, certainly Scott Ellis and I wanted to be on the other side of the table. We wanted to create for the theater. And uh, I had done the national tour of Chicago and Scott Ellis had done the rink. And so uh, Scott knew Kander and Neb. I knew them a little bit from the tour. But um, when Scott Ellis and I were doing a, a, 
a Broadway show that lasted, I think, a week on Broadway called Musical Chairs. I saw that. Oh, my gosh. And uh, we decided that um, uh, we would be brave and uh, ask Candor Neb if we could take one of their shows and uh, create it in a new way off Broadway. And Scott Ellis was very good friends with um, Tommy Thompson. Which uh, is David Thompson, but we call him Tommy Thompson. <laughs> We're not sure why, but uh, and so um, Tommy and Scott and I and went to Candor Neb, and we thought, what's the worst thing that could happen? They could say no, but in fact, they said yes. So we took one of their shows, Floor of the Red Menace, to the Vineyard, and Tommy reworked it in the form of WPA Theater, which was perfect for the Vineyard. But it was not only uh, a way for us to get started in the theater. We, we were very young at the time, of course. Uh, but um, for, and also to be creators, not to be performers. I think that's what, what we wanted more than anything uh, to create. But um, it bonded us into a great friendship with Candor and Ebb. And, and um, here we are today sitting with John Candor in the office, but uh, 30 years later. But, uh, or is it more, maybe? It feels like longer. <laughs> But uh, we, from that experience, and that started at the Vineyard, we have become best of friends. And it's been a, a wonderful journey to have created now many shows and now ultimately here with uh, The Beast in the Jungle. Yeah, it, it was actually a wonderful experience, Floor of the Red Menace. Working at the Vineyard, it was an opportunity to try out what we could do in a very small space in a theater with a, with a wonderful uh, sense of what it wanted from its artists. And it was a fun project. But mostly it was fun because it gave us a chance with John and Fred to really begin to learn the craft of how to go about working on a musical from the other side of the table where you were really uh, inventing it. What was wonderful about it is no matter what we came back with in our ideas, John and Fred were right there for us to of how to bring it to uh, to life. And um, for that reason, it was quite a learning experience, but one that was um very important. It was a great place to start. The element that is never discussed in this reminiscence is that Floor of the Red Menace was a flop on Broadway. <laughs> and uh, when these talented people approached us with the idea of redoing it, we were thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, the, uh, the idea that somehow or other we could figure out a way to do it right was extremely attractive particularly with these people that we liked some which we came to love really and uh, so uh, it was a very selfish decision that we made and right after that we went on to create and the world goes round which is a retrospective of Kander Neb's work and so it was more the excitement of being able to continue to work with John and Fred right after that well I remember John you had said um, Flora had been such a wonderful experience and you said you know they're not always like this this is something that's kind of rare we had a really great time it's not always like this It's a, and I think that was a, your way of saying look for those moments in the theater where you can um, love them and you can enjoy them and they can mean something because that's really the measure of what it means to work in the theater. And and ultimately that's become, I think, something that on any project we've ever done is try to make sure that that always remains front and center. And it, uh, 
I still feel that I feel that more today than ever. Maybe it's because I'm so ancient. But <laughs> the, uh, the idea of why do it if you're not going to if you're not going to have uh, a happy creative experience, and uh, and we have, I should say, and we do, and we have. <laughs> And that continues. The difference in the Scottsboro Boys is, of course, Fred Ebb was very much a part of that and the development of it. And what we started that idea, we were once again looking for a project to do, and we wanted to find something that was based on a true American event, an, an, an incident that uh, that was um, – and, and, and to do that, we looked at um, – different court cases and the one that sprung to mind immediately was the Scottsboro Boys which was a trial that we had stumbled across in history when we were looking at um, information to uh, for background information on both Floor of the Red Menace and Steel Pier but it was a story that was very compelling and we thought that would be something that'd be very interesting to bring to the stage because it would mean something would have something to say and uh, it was uh it was a project. I think we came. It, it came together very quickly, and then it was put on a shelf for a few years until we figured out what to do with it after Fred had died. But it was a project. I think we never lost faith in on any level. We always knew that it would come to the stage, and we just had to uh, wait for it to find its path. Do you remember when we actually started it? It was in about 2000 or 1999, which is a long time ago. But I remember. Um, I remember starting it around that time, and it was something that once we had uh, brought into the, the whole creative discussion, the idea of, of using a minstrel show as a format, it, the writing was very quick. It was very, it was very swift. Fred was writing. Fred was always ahead of us. He was always angry with us because we weren't <laughs> as fast as he was because he loved the project. He loved everything about it. He would, you remember him, you know, just saying, I'm two songs ahead. I'm four scenes. I'm, I'm in a whole <laughs> act ahead of you. And what's wrong with you all? And we would always be trying to catch up with Fred. It was something he felt very impassioned about. I'm not going to discuss that. <laughs> But it was something that when it did come together, it was very quick. And then when Fred died, we, we did put it on the shelf. And uh, until Kander, you said, let's take a look at it again. Let's see what we can do with this. And when, when Kander said that, we, we got together and realized a lot had been written. And and uh, Kander finished the score, finished uh, the entire piece. And, and when we felt we had it at a good place, we thought, where can we take it? That's right. So we called Doug Abel at the Vineyard and said, would you read this? And, and uh, if we got a group of actors together, maybe listen to it. And um, he right away, he loved it and thought it had great possibilities. But uh, also Doug is a wonderful dramaturg, is very yeah. helpful. Yeah, I was going to uh, say that. And uh, he did give, give us a reading, indeed a reading with all the actors. And, and uh, it was the beginning of some Something that he then fell in love with and, and wanted to produce. So we ended up back at the vineyard again with the Scottsboro Boys. What was great about Doug, though, is he was so clear-headed about what we needed to do in order to take a form that was a little bit... Uh, that really needed to be, we had to be very clear about how, why and how we were using it. And Doug was instrumental in making sure we had found the balance between what was entertaining and what was very dramatic. And that was something that I, that Doug was, I remember all the conversations with him about that. Yeah, it's, he was very useful. And I, I've, in 
my life in this business, I have found that people who are producers are often not very smart about uh, <laughs> what uh, in, in the advice that they give to the creative people. And it's quite the, uh, the reverse with Doug. I don't think I've, I don't think I've ever heard Doug make a suggestion that wasn't worth thinking about. Yeah, especially in that process, that writing process, because it was something that um, it had a lot to say, and it was something that you had to lean into, and you could never back away from. And the minute you started to retreat from the the audacity of the idea, you were in danger of losing it. So it was. It took a lot of, you know, he was always there to make sure that we never in any way didn't deliver what we set out to do. And bringing, bringing the show here also, the Scottsboro Boys to the Vineyard was, uh, you know, the Vineyard audience, uh, they're very smart, they're very savvy, they... They, they come here to see interesting theater. Um, you know, the Vineyard has set it up that they are uh, brave and take chances. And so it is an institution that is um, different from many others in New York. And uh, so we've, when we're here, we feel somewhat protected in a way just because of the support and the the, the just the bravery of of the idea of taking chances that that might not be mainstream but certainly um, entertaining to yeah. the vineyard audience. Well, it's difficult putting together a new musical. It's difficult enough. But if you're trying to, if you're looking to tell a story that might not fit into a mainstream format or idea of what a musical is supposed to be, but is, but you're still willing to back it a hundred percent and never back away from that support, that's very rare. The uh, I've done six uh, shows here, and in in none of those projects have I ever felt. Uh, a commercial pressure uh, from anybody. It's always with both both Doug and Sarah. It's always been about the piece and bringing uh, bringing a, a new work to its best possible completion. It was a, it was a wonderful project to work on because it, it was a very galvanizing project. It had a, an incredible company who were so compelled to tell that story. And as it moved through its process, I mean, they really launched that piece and it's had a life outside the vineyard and beyond, but I think it would never have had that life had it not had that incredible team around it. With the Beast of the Jungle, we had all we were once again looking for a project that we could work on. And we had all read the Henry James, The Beast in the Jungle, and we had uh, been attracted to it because it was a story about a man looking back on three chapters on his life. And it was that cautionary tale in his life of what happens when you miss those opportunities or you miss those chances to connect, in this case, with a, with a woman. We were, we thought this was a, a very powerful story. And uh, actually, Stroh had the idea of taking it and bringing it to uh, a contemporary time. And at that point, we really left the Henry James behind in order to make it a story that would uh, really that a contemporary audience could connect with. Because it is about it is that cautionary tale of what happens when you do miss opportunities in your life and and you do come to that point in your life at the end of your life where you might realize you hadn't actually um, lived your life, that you had somehow missed it. And somehow that story seemed something that um, all three of us felt was worth telling and telling in a new way and in a way that um, 
really was unencumbered by anything we might have ever done in the past. But that's where it started. That was the original inspiration for it. It's funny. It, it, it deviates from the outline of, of the story considerably, but it's in essence exactly what the story is about. So it's our own, it's, it's our own way of sort of digesting the Henry James and then telling the same story in our own way. Well, uh, when we started this piece, too, we, we thought, what if it was told um, with almost like a dance play where um, the idea of somebody who waltzed through their life, waltzing through life. And when we, we, we came to that thought, of course, John Kander jumped on it right away, the idea of writing an entire score in three-quarter time. Um, he, he lit up, and, uh, and in fact, so much so that, that he would write a different waltz uh, every night, and it would end up on my phone in the morning. So <laughs> I would wake up to a, to a John Kander waltz on my, on my uh, iPhone, uh, and I thought, How, what a lucky girl I am. <laughs> but he really immersed himself in the waltzes, uh, and and uh, until we finally had ourselves a a, a real really good storyline, and then he started to write waltzes for those particular emotions and situations. It uh, I've said this often but that uh, when we decided uh, that it was going to be all in, uh, all waltzes, I I, I told. I asked Stro, "How much do I have to pay you to let me write this, this <laughs> score?" I know we we've had a wonderful time because, and also what Candor's written in three quarter time, it's it's still uh, it's John Candor, but it, it's it seems unique to me. I've I've never heard anything like it. So I think the the piece has a unique quality about it. It, it is the plot is is driven by narration, but also by the dance and by the music, and. Uh, it has a, just a very unique look to it, and I think the vineyard's the perfect place to do this. Well, it's interesting, though. It, it, it is a different form now that we look back on it. If, if we were to, but if you were to go back to the point where we were actually initially talking about it, nobody ever starts a conversation thinking they're going to do something different in the form that if they, and if you did, I think you would be lying that you ever really had that much forethought. Um, <laughs> But looking at what we now have on the stage, it is a it's a different use of those storytelling devices, whether it is through the dialogue or a dramatic situation or the way dance is used to propel the story and specifically the music. I think one of the things that was fun about the creation of this was and it. It was a lot of conversations at Stroh's studio, uh, which is, when do we dance? When do we talk? When do we do both? And since we were starting this piece with no preconceptions or even the vaguest idea how to do it, everything was possible. And it, uh, how, how, what could be more fun than that? Yeah, I mean that's the part that, that I have to say about this piece that was that's been particularly exciting is it's finding the place where we where the, the only thing you can do is dance or the only thing you can do is somehow have a scene with somebody or the only thing you can do is put it into music. And it's and it's you're still following I wouldn't say the rules, you're still following the 
the inspiration behind a musical, but at no point does anybody turn around and start singing. There no, there's no sung, there's no sung there's action. There's nothing bad about singing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would just like to remove that little bit of sarcasm. Uh, but the fact is, we were finding. When did it seem right for somebody to narrate, or when did it seem right to somebody to actually play a scene, or when can you should it do you do a scene in dance, or when do you do all of it? At the same time and uh we just uh, we just had a great time finding that out and uh we have our, our wonderful set and costume designer michael curry when we started to work with him too uh we are it's being being created sort of in an abstract world and he's a master at um um, doing that, uh, all of a sudden making an ocean on stage out of some silk or making a river um, or making a bird fly out of the dark into the light. And uh, he is very, very imaginative and, and all of a sudden took took our script and, and made it come to life in, a, in, in also a, a unique way. It is a cautionary tale and it is, um, so it has, uh, it lives in both worlds as a hopeful world and and a and a world of uh, that is sad for someone who did miss every cue and use some sort of an excuse to not live his life. Uh, we have uh, we use the idea of a beast as someone. Uh, we know a lot of people who have a beast inside them, and what it is is really an excuse not to somehow go forward or or live their life to the fullest. And uh, this particular story, of course, involves a man who has a beast, and and uh, we see the three chapters of his life of of how he more or less uses that as an excuse. And, uh, yeah, to keep from connecting with the the woman of his the love of his life, a woman that he uh, has been um, has met very only in three different chapters of his life, but has uh, provided him um, with a, a just a sense of a passion and and some, wanting something, but ultimately his inability to connect and to and to make and to go to the next step. I must say, uh, even when I was much younger, uh, the idea of reaching the end of your life and looking back at it and thinking, I missed it, is one of the saddest things that, that I can conceive of. And uh, that's the story we're telling. The great thing about it, though, is also it allows us to look at the talents of our cast in different ways. I mean, you wouldn't normally have a cast that would include an actor like Peter Friedman, who is so skilled and, and so uh, has such command to... Uh, in 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 this kind of a piece where you also have a ballerina Irina Devarovenko who is an absolutely beautiful uh, prima ballerina a, a star who's able to also carry um uh as much dramatic weight as she does and or somebody like Tony Asbeck who's able to um bridge both the world of dance and and uh in many different forms so everybody that's on stage is sort of is used in a different way and doing something that you wouldn't typically see the development process for Beast in the Jungle was very accelerated. Once we knew what we wanted to do, it came together very quickly. We were fortunate enough to have two workshops, which allowed us to do uh, a couple things. One is to find a musical 
the way the music, well, sure, you should talk about this, but when you're doing something with dance, the music and the dance take a little bit more time than you would ever have in a typical, uh, in a typical musical. It requires a lot more preparation. Well, I think when, when dance is involved, uh, John Kando will write a, this beautiful melody, and which is appropriate for the situation and the scene, and then, then I need to choreograph it so I need to ask him well now I need I need you know 10 more bars of this or eight more bars of that and and I you know can you modulate here because I'm going to leap in the air right here so then the music has to be arranged so uh, Kander writes it in the most the purest form and then uh, then it's arranged for the the um, choreography what's wonderful about what John Kander does is that he's very visual when he writes so I can say to him I see two people on the beach in Pompeii falling in love and it comes out of his fingers onto the keyboard <laughs> and that is the music and the music says there are two people in Pompeii falling in love. That's because I've had so much experience falling in love on the beach at Pompeii. Oh, I, I see. <laughs> I see. It all comes out now. <laughs> but, it is, but it is remarkable. Though. I mean, it, 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 you know, or, or you can as an author just have characters talk about it, but it's another thing to actually have it represented in music or in movement and that is the part where it really lifts. But it is, but it is what Kenner's bringing to it is incredible. Uh, one thing, and, well, as, as we speak about this, well, another element we were very fortunate about is that Sam Davis, uh, who did the orchestrations, also was there every day uh, working with Stroh uh, in the dance arrangements. Uh, and so when he came to orchestrate, he already knew the piece as well as any of us. So he, mm-hmm. he's, a, in a funny way, a fourth collaborator in this. Mm-hmm. Yes. And his work is absolutely brilliant, and uh, and it, fortunately, and it doesn't always happen like this with the three of us and Sam. It all sounds as if it was done by one person, yeah. and I'm very. That's when you you can feel great satisfaction. I mean, you'll see on the stage that the the choreography is supported by the music when. When they leap in the air, so does the orchestra. When they, when they, you know, do a tap step, so does the orchestra. It's it's completely supported um, by the music. Yeah, what is also great about it, though, in the use of the music is is the now now that the orchestra is coming into the mix is in rehearsals to be able to hear that sound that really defines the um, the personality of the piece. It's a it's a it's an it's a well, how would you describe it? It's not orchestral in that it sounds like there's a hundred pieces, but it has its own sense of life. Uh, the orchestra's nine uh, nine pieces, and it was the approach to orchestrating was it was that it was never to sound like an apology for a big or that we didn't have a big orchestra. It was always to be a piece of chamber music where you can have duets, you can have solos, you have little trios, and sometimes. Uh, uh, even when all nine, <laughs> that sounds so funny, all nine of our players uh, are playing, it still sounds uh, like a, a chamber music approach, not an excuse for not having a big orchestra. And because of that, and I again, hats off to Sam, it... Uh, He's. He, it's kind of pure in that way. Uh, this whole collaboration is that we all feed each other. 
and uh, it's what collaboration is supposed to be like and sometimes is but sometimes is not and we're certainly inspired by the actors and and their their talents and i feel like we've tapped into uh sort of the best of of what they do yet in the same breath i want to say they're they are also challenged by by this material so i feel like we've been able to use use what they do best, but now ask them to stretch themselves. Um, Irina is a magnificent uh, ballet dancer, but has um, wonderful acting chops. And so we're able to, Candor is able to write beautiful lyrical music for her. Uh, and then Tommy's able to write these very, very dramatic scenes. And so she she's doing what she knows, but then is now stretching herself. Tony Asbeck, incredible dancer, rhythmic. He's like a walking drummer. He's filled with rhythm mm-hmm. and and passion, and uh, and uh, you know he's he's such a star. He he is now being asked to to do that to dance with great rhythm, but now also dance very lyrical and in a lyrical way with this wonderful ballerina, and and asked to do two parts. He's asked to play. Young Marcher, which is a young version of Peter Friedman, and then the nephew, which is Peter Friedman's nephew, uh, or adult Marcher's nephew. So he plays two different characters. So I feel like it's a piece that's asking Tony also to stretch. And and then uh, Peter Friedman now, who is a, a wonderful actor with, with weight and gravitas and, and uh, great command, is now being thrust in the middle of music. So now he is being challenged. So I, I, it's, uh, I, I think for all of us to do this sort of um, new form uh, for all of us has been um, wonderful because it has just made us all grow. The experience has been and continues to be wonderful. And with all of our various gifts and approaches to it, when you get right down to it, it's really stro. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it brother. Is. I mean, oh, brother. Oh, that means I'm paying for dinner, I think. <laughs> no, but it's true. <laughs> I'm paying for dinner, I guess. Or I'll slip, I'll slip you 20 bucks after this is over. <laughs> no, I'd rather have dinner. <laughs> okay. Well, that's it for Theater Uncorked at the Vineyard. Thanks to John Kander, David Thompson, and Susan Stroman for joining us on the podcast. Theater Uncorked is produced and edited by me, Eric Pargotch, Vineyard Theater's Director of Communications and New Media, with help from our associate producer, Ali Sky Bennett, and Marketing Director, Melissa Pelkey. Thanks to the Vineyard's Artistic Directors, Douglas Abel and Sarah Stern, and our Managing Director, Suzanne Appel, along with the entire Vineyard staff. If you enjoyed this episode, do us a favor and rate and review us on iTunes. It helps spread the word. And last but not least, thanks to you for listening to Theater Uncorked at the Vineyard. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now 
and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.